morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church on Skype. Let's begin today by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you in all times for your love, your grace, your power. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Father, for who you are, for your glory, your omniscience, your omnipotence, your righteousness. We thank you also, Father, for your word. We thank you for the spirit. We thank you for one another here as members of the body of Christ. We ask today that the Holy Spirit would guide each and every one of us as we consider the word of God, your word, in the Gospel of John. And we ask also, Father, that you would look over and protect the church. We ask also, Father, that you would see fit so we can gather together in person just as soon as possible. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 We, uh, as, as you know, we won't, we are not gathering in person today. And our plan is to, to not be gathering Thursday or Sunday coming up. But of course, we will be on Skype as we are today. We're going to assess the situation next weekend and let you know our plans uh, at that time via text or email. But thank you for joining us this morning. That's the only announcement, so let's get started. I'd like you to, uh, this is the title of today's message. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to the, the, the Galileans, and he's talking to teaching them about the salvation and the glory of it and the ultimate when they when we are raised up to be with him forever. So with that, let's turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 35. John, chapter 6, verse 35 is where we'll begin today. I will read this passage through verse 44, and then we will dive into what it means. Again, John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet, Do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, 
I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. We begin this morning with the same verse that we ended with last Sunday, namely John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is identifying himself now as the bread of life that he's described already. And Jesus said this so that there would be no understanding, misunderstanding at all. That when he talked about the food which endures to eternal life in verse 27 and the bread from God that comes down from heaven, verse 33, he is talking about himself. I am the bread of life. Remember now, I mentioned last week that that phrase, I am, followed by a predicate or followed by a noun, this is, is, appears seven times. Jesus uses that expression seven times in the Gospel of John, always by giving more information about his identity, about who he is, as well as his work. Now, he had told them already that the work of God, as they asked, they said, what do we do so that we may have this bread? And he said, the work of God is to believe in him whom God has sent, namely Jesus. It's that simple. And yet there's a big problem right here, a terrible problem. We've seen it We've seen it twice in this passage, and that is that while he who believes in Jesus will never thirst, that means that, that the believing in Jesus, and once you believe in Jesus, you will never thirst spiritually. It's talking about the fact that this bread that endures um, for eternity, he's talking about really eternal security. We'll see a little bit more of that this morning. But there's still a problem. He says he who believes in Jesus will never thirst. But here's the problem. They do not believe in him. You can imagine, in a sense, the frustration that that must have brought on if Jesus were capable of being frustrated. They're not believing in him, even though they have seen his miracles. They, and he has told them that he is the one whom God has sent to give the food which endures to eternal life. They have seen all of that, yet they do not believe that he is this bread of life that came down out of heaven. They don't believe. So at this point, it begs the question, is Jesus failing in his mission? Is his mission failing? Of course, we know the answer to that. Absolutely not. It's explained for us back in John chapter one in the in the prologue of this gospel. I'd like you to turn there with me now to John chapter one, verse nine. John chapter one, verse nine. 
we have the benefit, of course, of being able to read the prologue. The, the people that Jesus was te- teaching didn't have that benefit, and so they had to follow along with the manner in which he chose to reveal himself. Nevertheless, Jesus knew this, and we know it. <coughs> and it describes from a from a heavenly point of view what was happening as Jesus was ministering in Capernaum. John chapter 1, verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is, this is Jesus, the Son of God. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jewish people, like those who were gathering there in Capernaum at the time. He came to his own, and those who were his own, the Jewish people, did not receive him, by and large. There were some, but the majority didn't. They didn't receive him. But as many as did, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We've seen already, we'll continue to see how Jesus realizes that he was there to do the will of his father. He was always talking about the will of God, the will of his father. And we see right here at the beginning of the gospel in verse 13, that those who believe in his name are born, but they're not born of blood or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It's the will of God and it's of God. And that's the focus here. You see, there will be people who believe in him. Indeed, some already had. Indeed, we've already seen that a whole town of Samaritan men believed in the Lord Jesus as the savior of the world. And that tells us that those who believe will not be from among Jews only because, again, by and large, he came to those who were his own and they didn't receive him. No, Gentiles also. Gentiles also will believe in him. While nearly all of them won't see him, they will take the word of those who are preaching the gospel. Now, we know that Jesus is the one, and it's the gospel of John that really tells us who is the savior of the world, all people. He is the light of the world, all people. He is the true light that enlightens every man. The bread of God that gives life to the world again and again and again in the Gospel of John. He's expanding this while the first three gospel writers are primarily focused on Jesus' mission to the Jewish people. John opens that way, way up. I say John. It's Jesus, of course, through his teaching that opens it way, way up. But John records it. He's saying, listen, this Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he's the savior of the world. He is the bread of God that gives life to the world. He is the true light that enlightens every man. Please turn to John chapter 10, verse 16 with me. John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says it another way. Because he's also the good shepherd and he's also the door for the the sheep to enter into, to be safe inside, to be saved inside. Notice John ten sixteen. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. This fold refers again to the Jewish people. He says, I have other sheep besides which are not of this fold, not Jewish. 
I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So from God's point of view, he is he is providing gathering together, and we'll see a little more of this this morning, and it's something that we maybe not be comfortable with it first, but it's a fact that God is it has brought a, a flock for his son, and that flock consists of both Jews and Gentiles. So at this point in time, even though the people that he's talking to aren't believing in him, Jesus by no means is discouraged. And there's one big reason for it. And it's a reason that we should keep in mind and should focus on ourselves. And it's real simple. He's placing his confidence in the will of his father, not on the will of fleshly men. He's not placing his confidence on the will of fleshly men. He knows what is in man. He's not going to judge the success of his mission according to the response of the people right in front of him. In fact, he knows the prologue, which we just read, which which tells him that most of them aren't. Most of them aren't, but to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. So his father's will is ironclad and therefore his confidence is sure. It's it's there is no doubt. That, that the will of the Father will be done, and the will of the Father is that there will be many who will come to Jesus and believe in him. Let's go back now to John chapter 6, verse 37, as we continue our passage this morning. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, of course, Jesus is speaking and and he's teaching. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He's saying, you may not believe me, but there will be those whom the Father gives me and they will come to me. And those who come to me, every individual who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's a figure of speech where he's saying totally the opposite. Not only will he not cast them out, he'll embrace them and protect them and keep them. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. But I raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable passage. It may cause some concern, particularly if we have a rigid doctrinal theological concepts that we want to understand, but it's remarkable nonetheless. It's remarkable, first of all, that Jesus paints everything in the colors of his Father's will. Notice verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice verse 38, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who says it's unmistakable. His entire focus is on the will of his father. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Verse 40. This is the will of my father. In other words, in all four of these verses, the whole focus, it's all painted in the colors 
of his father's will. It's remarkable. It's remarkable for another reason as well. The subject is remarkable. He talks about the fact that he will, he will raise these people up on the last day. He has already talked about the fact that those who believe in him will never thirst again and never hunger again. It's remarkable. Why? Because of the subject. It's the final salvation of believers. It's a remarkable subject. I will raise him up on the last day. He is, in other words, he is talking about the fact that whoever believes in him will not only be his forever, but there will be a resurrection. This is he's teaching this here. So those are the so he and he's teaching it in terms of the last times, although he puts it what on the last day. Now there will be a last day for the Jewish people when there will be a resurrection of the faithful saints of Israel. Then there will also before that there will be the resurrection of the church. Okay, so you so he and he had, that hasn't been the church really hasn't been revealed yet. Remember, and so he's he's bundling that all together. He is saying everybody who who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, salvation, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So this is package passage is not only remarkable about Jesus paints everything in the colors of His Father's will. It's what matters to Jesus. Not only that, but the subject matter is remarkable. This final salvation of believers. I will raise him up on the last day. There's another reason why this passage is remarkable, because it's remarkable how forcefully Jesus declares that believers are eternally secure. Believers are eternally secure. He says, all of them will come to me. I will never let go of them. It is my father's unchangeable will that of all that he has given me, I will lose nothing. How many times does he have to say it? He says, my father's will that everyone who believes in the son will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Eternal security, eternal security. So you can imagine at this point, now that Jesus is focused on his father's will, and the, and the remarkable subject of the final salvation of believers and the eternal security of believers, he is no longer concerned with the lack of faith in his current audience. He's gone way, way beyond that. He's left that problem in the dust, as it were. He still cares about those people. He's still going to preach to them. But in terms of it being a problem, it's not a problem. As soon as he takes his mind off the individuals in front of him and onto the will of his father and And that's a good lesson for all of us, because we're all going to have situations. Maybe it's in our ministry, it's our family life, it's in witnessing to our neighbor, whatever it might be, where if we just look at the people right in front of us, we can easily get discouraged. But just like Jesus, once we look at the, the fact that, you know what, the father's in control of everything. He's sovereign. It's his will that matters. His will will be accomplished. And so I'm just going to relax and just focus on him and put it in his hands. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to be lazy and I'm not going to do anything. It's that concern, that worry, that despair, that fear. It's all gone once we hand it all over and realize that it's all placed in the will of his father. That We know that for us, for example, he saw us in Christ before the world was. So that gives us comfort, realizing that 
He has got this all down that his he he will not be thwarted in his designs. That everyone who believes in him have in Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus will have a flock, and he'll raise every individual up on the last day. In other words, at this point, Jesus begins to behold the sovereignty of his Father. Just he's just looking at it, marveling at it. The sovereignty of his father. There is nothing. There is not a sparrow that falls to the ground that the father doesn't know about. He has counted the very hairs on our head. Everything. He's sovereign over everything. Everything in heaven. Everything on earth. Everything under the earth. And he has and he has distributed, given things to his son. All things actually, but they include. That the, the, uh, carrying out the will of his father, they, they also include his love. They it, they include the fact that he has been given life to give to everybody that he chooses, and also judgment. We've seen that already in previous chapters, chapter five specifically. And so now, once again, in the face of unbelief, he is now just beholding the sovereignty of his father. By the way, Paul does the same thing. Uh, in particular, focus on the church now. And I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is a very similar passage, only now focused on the sovereignty of God when it comes to the salvation of members of the body of Christ and all that has been accomplished in the will of God for us. And it's also true that we are given to Jesus and the father has given us to the we are a gift as the body of Christ. We are a gift that that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never cast us out. It's the will of him who sent him, the will of him who sent him. that He will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. The will of his father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. Now, let's look at how Paul puts the same principle. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, we know, we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's the same principle. God causes everything. You know, nothing happens without his consent. He's all powerful. He's all loving. And everything he has figured out, he has put in place that everything will work together for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And in context, that's every believer in Christ in the church age, every member of the body of Christ. He is causing all things to work together for good. By the way, I always point this out. Verse 28, does it say it's all good? It doesn't. That that expression, I really I'm not a fan of because it's not all good. I mean, just just open your eyes and you can see that there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of evil. This world is a terrible place. So it's not all good. But we have the promise that within the sovereignty of God and his care and his love for us, our lives, everything he will use, whatever those things are, whatever those difficulties, tragedies, Anything else, the, 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 the disappointments that we have, the persecution that we may receive, all of that, he is working that together for good. And if that is not 
a great promise that causes us to relax and trust, then I don't know what is. God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Every believer in Christ in the church age has been called according to the purpose of God. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. God the Father foreknew you and I as believers in Christ, again, before the foundation of the world. For those whom he foreknew, and I want you to notice something, that everything here is focused on who God is and what God does. He foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Don't let that word predestined throw you because of the misuse among the Calvinists. that says God picks some to be saved and others not to be. That is blasphemous. No, it just means that among those whom he foreknew, he knew that we would be members of the body of Christ. He predestined us to be what? Not to be saved. I want you to notice carefully. No, to be conformed to the image of his son, a special privilege, a special blessing, so that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice that in the same way that, that Jesus is paints everything in the colors of his father's will. The father looks at things according to his son. When he looks at the human race, he sees everybody as through the, through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That goes for believers and unbelievers. You just have to be on opposite sides of the equation. No, he's doing this for his son. Why? So that his son would be the firstborn among many brethren. So it's between God the father and God the son. All right. We're just we're just, as it were, alone for the ride. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Notice it's what he's doing. Notice that we're not in this picture in terms of anything that we do. Some people some people want to put in here, for example, us believing. Well, it's not in here. I'm not saying it's not important. We're going to see this in a minute. But let's just take a little time and, uh, and honor the focus of what Jesus is doing, and that is the sovereignty, the wonder, the glory of his Father. Again, verse 20, let's go back to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be the firstborn among many brethren. He would have many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, the Father also called. He did it. He did it. Just like Jesus is talking that, that that the father is is as all that the father has has given him will come to him. You see, the father called them, and those whom he called, he also justified. Well, he at the moment that we believe in Christ, he declares us righteous for all time. He did it, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, one of the remarkable things about this passage, among many, is the fact that this takes us all the way from eternity past to eternity future as being as being foreknown by God, as being predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It will happen in that in that we will be a brethren of the Lord. And we've also been called according to the father's will. And we've also been justified and we've also been glorified. That glorification, we'll see it when Christ comes back. And we're, we have that resur- resurrection when the church 
is 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 goes into into this into the clouds and is joined with so we'll see it all then we'll have these resurrection bodies and we'll be glorious but god the father has already decreed that it is certain it's going to happen so once in a while we've got to step out of our theological categories and just marvel at the sovereignty of god to just marvel at that after all by the way it's not as if faith in Christ is not important. It is important. So don't miss this. You can look at the sovereignty of God and see his remarkable work. And at the same time, understand that there is this element of the fact that we, we are to believe in Christ in order to have eternal life. So that isn't lost. It's just in comparison to the to the majesty of looking at God's sovereignty and what he has accomplished. And thank God he has. I am so thankful that none of this depends on me. I'm so thankful that I am just I am just this one whom he I'm plugged into this whole amazing program that he has. All right. It's not as if faith, though, in Christ is not important because it is important. After all, if there's one message in this whole gospel, if there's one message that Jesus already has made clear and abundantly clear, it's this, right? We've seen this again and again and again, believe in Christ for eternal life. You see, that's that's the theme, right? The, the purpose of the gospel. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That doesn't go away. That is still foundational to the gospel. It's a major theme. It's probably the the major theme. But right now, Jesus is now focused on the will of his father. And that's a glorious thing. And again, it, it goes way beyond anything that we can understand. And so sometimes we've got to put aside, you know, the fact that our focus on ourselves and just look at how God has mapped this all out. Okay. But believing in Christ for eternal life, as a matter of fact, please look at John chapter 6, 35. Let's go back to the Gospel of John now. Look at where, where we've just been to begin this morning. John chapter 6, verse 35. I'll give you a moment to back up from Romans. John chapter 6, verse 35. <laughs> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So believing in Christ for eternal life, critical. He's just made that point again right before this passage where he shifts his eyes to the will of his father. But here's the point. Once Jesus focuses on the will of his father, everything else sort of pales. Still there, but in the light of the glory of God's sovereignty and God's grace, um, everything about us, everything about us just pales in comparison. And that's something we need to recognize, that we, that we, that we don't panic when all of a sudden the view expands to the magnificence of God's glory of his sovereignty. His sovereignty is great. Don't be afraid of it. It's his sovereignty that assures that you will be resurrected from the dead, for example. Okay, his sovereignty is the one who made our salvation by grace through faith, not of works. So there's not God's sovereignty is amazing, and it it is it is the foundation 
of everything that the Bible teaches us about who we are in Christ as well as his grace. And so when when things stop and that's the focus, we put everything else aside and just spend some time on the greatness of God's glory. We're still there, but as Paul did, as soon as that flash of heaven appears, we fall to the ground. It's not about us at all anymore. Please look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. And just let the word of God speak, throw away, not for good, but for now, park him on the side of the road, whatever perhaps preconceived ideas you have here, and just listen to the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. And notice the qualities of God. So that's the thing. If if we thought God was uh, against us, if we thought that he was just a, a judge and a tyrant, then obviously his sovereignty would be something fearful. But that's not who he is. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us who he is. But God is rich in mercy, rich in mercy. There's nobody else I would rather have as the sovereign, sovereignty over me and all of my totality than God who is rich in mercy, than God who has great love for every one of us, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, you see, I don't want this to depend on me. I want this to depend on God because I know based on my own experience, but most importantly, based on what the word of God says, that in and of myself, I was just dead in my transgressions. God had to come on the scene and make me alive, make all of us alive. Make all of us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He raised us. He did it. He raised us up with him. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the grace of God. There's no way that we a, could do that or we could, a, could even imagine that that could be done for us. And yet God did. He raised us up with with him. He seated us with him, with God now, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I'm motivated by his great love and his mercy. It's It's not about what we've done or not done, and thank God it isn't. It's by grace. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, that works thing is the stumbling block. We saw that already with the Jews here in chapter 6, where they wanted to know, what's the work that we perform? And he said, here's the deal. Just, just, Just hear the word of God and believe it. That's what you are called to accomplish as it were. And now after all that, let's go back to John 30, John 6, 37 to 40. Let's go back there. Because this passage is remarkable in yet another way. I'm going to read the passage again because we've been in some different places. Back to our passage now in verse 37.
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see, this passage is remarkable in one other way as well. And that is this. It's remarkable for how seamlessly it weaves the matter of believing in Christ. It weaves that together into the tapestry of the will of God. So it's not forgotten. He ultimately will weave it together. It'll come right back in. We'll see how these two mesh perfectly in the tapestry of the will of God. His sovereignty, again, and also the fact that the, the matter of believing in Christ is also critical. It's, again, the, the message of this gospel is to believe in Christ for eternal life. But here, the manner in which he, he accomplishes that, describes it, is remarkable. Now, remember, I mentioned this a few times, that John's gospel can be seen as a great symphony. Remember, we saw there's a theme introduced, a melody, and then it's, it's developed for a little while, and then it's put aside, and then there's another theme. But then it comes back around to the original one. I mean, that's how a great symphony is composed. This gospel is composed in a similar kind of way. So if you think about what what are the major movements that we've seen so far? Well, absolutely. A major major one of, of importance in this symphony is the importance of believing in Christ for eternal life. We'll hear that. Movement, that that melody, that theme again and again and again. We've already seen it. Gosh, I don't know how many times and that will continue to happen. All right. That is the that is the melody that that flows throughout this entire gospel. We've heard it often already in this in this symphony of the gospel of John. But now in verses 37 to 40, that melody is, as it were, muted. It's quiet. It's quieted down. It's maybe it's there, but it's played with like with instruments like the flute that, you know, if you, the flute, you can hear it until the trumpet sounds, right. Or until the timpani blast or until the, the 30 violins play at the same time. And on them, that, that other melody for a time is kind of lost in the other music. And that's what happens. So that, while this melody of believing in Christ for eternal life is important and we hear it throughout this symphony here in verse 37, the, or- the orchestra, as it were, opens the floodgates of sound to declare the glory of God. And that's, that is fantastic. And we, we just have to realize that both of them are in this symphony. Both of them are in the tapestry of God's will. We don't take one out and just focus on the other, right? We say that this is, they're both here. And uh, we may not understand how they fit together, but that's not our place, really. You know, we get in trouble when we try to figure out things that God has left unsaid. We get in trouble when we do that. The church gets in trouble. Individuals get in trouble. I've done it many times in my life, and I've always been in trouble at the end, and it's really not accomplished a thing. Look at Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. 
this is another moment in God's word. And it's, and it's a tremendous reminder to us about the big picture. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. When you look up into the heavens, they all speak of the glory of God. So you can walk outside at night, and hopefully it's a starry night, and you look up and you see the stars. They declare the glory of God, as do all of his creation. The expanse of heaven declares the work of his hands. And and so that puts things in, in the proper light. Certainly, we, we man is here. Certainly, uh, it's important that we believe in Christ for eternal life. But remember, the glory of God is is way beyond anything that we can understand. So at this point, again, I would just advise each one of us to sort of park any rigid doctrinal categories on the side of the road for now and just hear the word of God. Let's go back now one more time to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 39 to 40. I want to show you just how seamlessly the will of God and believing in Christ are woven together right here. John chapter 6, verses 39 to 40. I'll give you a moment to get there. The will of God, what he has done, and that we behold the Lord Jesus and believe him for eternal life, they come together. Here in these last two verses of our passage this morning. John chapter 6, verse 39 to 40. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Notice this under the canopy of the will of God, the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 39, the focus is on what God has done. The fact that God has given a body of people, a, a, a sheepfold, a flock, that all, Jesus says, all that he's given me, and that's foremost. He's given me these people. I lose nothing, eternal security, but raise it up on the last day. But then there's verse 40 that comes right after. This is the will of my father. Now what is it? That everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will myself will raise him up on the last day. So now what comes in? Everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. That also is right under the canopy of the will of my father. And then the same conclusion, I myself will raise him up on the last day. These two verses, verses 39 and 40, are parallel to one another. What I mean by that? Well, both of them start with the will of the father. Both of them end with Jesus raising people up on the last day. And then in between, there's 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 a piece that is different. You see, but but overall, these two verses are parallel to one another in their structure, how they're set up. Will of God comes first, this is middle element, raise it up on the last day. And even the language is very similar. He talks about the will of God in both. He talks about he raising them up on the last day, really almost the exact word for word. By the way, we'll see that expression a couple more times. It turns out to be a key expression in this in, in chapter six, because as here, it also weaves things together. 
It also says, well, here, this what Jesus is saying right now may be a little bit um, hard to understand, difficult statement. But it, now it has that I will raise him up on the last day. So bring together all that we've already learned about those people and then put that together with this new statement that Jesus is making. And then it resolves. It's no longer a difficult saying. So, again, these two verses are parallel to one another. But, of course, when we see, when, when you have two verses, whether it's in this Bible or in poetry, when they're very similar to one another, it emphasizes the differences because that's what stands out. More precisely, it shows that two things that, boy, they sound like they're very different, but they turn out to be identical. Let me show you this in sort of a mathematical way, if you forgive me. Um, I'm going to use algebra just for a moment. Now, now I know the sovereignty of God, right? That shouldn't scare us. But I know for a lot of people, algebra does. So, you know, just relax. And I'll just make this simple as I can. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I'm going to use the letter A for what follows. Well, what follows? Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. So this is the will of him who sent me that A, but raise it up on the last day. Okay, that's verse 39. Here's verse 40. This is the will of my father, that B, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, they're pretty much identical. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my father. Raise it up on the last day. I will raise him up myself on the last day. But then there's A and then there's B. So since we have this parallel structure, all right, and if you if you just think logically as well as mathematically, it the conclusion has to be what? That A is B. <laughs> A equals B. In other words, words a and b refer to the same people because these are the ones whom jesus will raise on the last day these are the ones that are who they are according to the will of the father a and b refer to the same people the ones whom jesus will raise on the last day now who are those people in verse 39 all that god has given jesus jesus will lose nothing so in verse 39, we find out that these are the people that God has given Jesus. But that's the same thing equals in verse 40. What? Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. In other words, he says, I lose nothing. And then he says they will have eternal life. That's, that's saying the same thing. Ultimately, he's talking about eternal security. I won't lose them. They will have life forever. And then you have these two groups of people that turn out to be identical. All that God, his father, has given Jesus equals everyone who beholds the son and believes in him. They're the same people. And, and it's an identity. There's nothing here about cause and effect. That's, that's sometimes what our brains want to put in here. Well, which one causes the other? Well, that's just not the way God looks at it. It's not the way he's described it. He's not saying that I've given them, therefore that causes them to believe. That's where we want to go. Or they believe in him and that causes him to give us as a gift. But it's not here. It's not in the verse. It's just take it on faith that these are the same people. 
The ones that God has given Jesus are the ones who behold the Son and believe in him, and vice versa. The ones who behold the Son and believe in him are the ones that God has given Christ. Or another way of looking at this, the people that the Father has given Jesus, right? That's where this starts. The Father has given Jesus these people. Those people are made up of individuals who behold the Son and believe in him. You see, the gift that the Father gives the Son is everybody, okay? It's the people, all right? But then the believing is individual, made up of individuals who behold the Son and believe in him. So you have this great, you know, God gives the church to Christ as his body, right? We're all members one of another, all right? The whole body, that's how God sees it. I'm giving you the body and you're the head. But within that body are individuals who behold the Son and believe in him. And again, please, please don't do the chicken and egg thing right now. By the way, have you forced me to to speak in those terms with a gun in my head? Well, it's easy. There's no question that the Father giving the people to Jesus is the most significant part. It's first. But that's not but that's not actually what Jesus is, is saying here. All right. So so at this point, I just want to make a little point here, uh, a little off the topic. But because I know it's something that from time to time bothers people. Jesus is not teaching Calvinism by no means. He is not saying that God has predestined some to go to heaven and predestined others to go to hell. He's not saying that. He's not saying that. There's a limited atonement that Jesus only died for something. None of that's in here, right? This is not Calvinism, all right? It is just presenting these two things that are both true about the same people. By the way, speaking of Calvinism, it's pretty ironic to me that a group of people who say they're all about the sovereignty of God start drawing all these limitations around him, what he can and can't do based on their own rigid doctrinal formula. That's just an aside. Again, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, says the same thing, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. They appear together in this symphony. God has placed them under his sovereignty, and he's placed them both together. So as we close today, I would like to take a look at at verse 44. Of John chapter 6. We'll come back to this next week, but I want you to see it now because we have the, we have a very similar structure again. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me. This is Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now we have a third description of the people, right? We've already had the ones that God has given Jesus. We've had the ones who behold the Son and believe in him. And now we have the ones who come to him, but only can come because the Father draws them. Again, the initiative, the emphasis here is on the Father, what he's doing, right? Father draws them, they come, and they, therefore they come to him, but it's the same people. I will raise them up on the last day. 
All right. I want you to look at verse 37 because 44 and 37 go together. Look at verse 37 and verse 44. Well, just look at verse 37, keeping in mind verse 44, that no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws him, draws him. That's new. Look at John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me in verse 44 unless the Father who sent me draws him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You see, all the, all the people that the Father gives Jesus will come to him. There's just one problem. They can't come to him. You know, unbelievers naturally are like that lame man. Remember the lame man at the pool of Bethesda? He'd been there for 38 years. He couldn't walk. He couldn't get anyone to bring him to the pool. And then and Jesus comes along and he says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. You see, well, before we are believers in Christ, remember, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't come to him. We're like the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. We need, we need the Lord to draw us. We need the Father to draw us. Nobody can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. They cannot come unless the Father draws him. So I want, so here's the, now, don't get disturbed because these are the same people. The people that the Father draws are the people that God, that the Father gives the Son, and they're the same people who behold the Son and believe in him for eternal life. But there's just one other element. They cannot come unless the Father draws them. I want you to think of it this way. The father gives a flock to Jesus. He says, this is your flock. Then what he does next is he draws one of the sheep in that flock to Jesus. And that sheep comes to Jesus. And it's that that simple. Now, the sheep is a person who beholds Jesus, the son of God, and believes in him. The people that the father draws so that they will come to Jesus are the same people who behold Jesus and believe in him. The people that the Father draws so that they will come to Jesus, same people that behold Jesus and believe in him. I'm going to say it another way. People who behold Jesus and believe in him are the people that the Father draws so that they will come to Jesus. I don't want to confuse you here, but I want to just say that they work both ways. See, that's an equal sign, right? If A equals B, then B equals A, right? If John Farley is the wife of Roberta Farley, then, I mean, whoa, <laughs> I'm not the wife. These are interesting times, but I'm. If, if John Farley is the husband of Roberta Farley, then that equals the fact that the husband of Roberta Farley equals John Farley, just to make it kind of simple. So again, the people that the father draws so that they'll come to Jesus, are the people that behold Jesus and believe in him. Yet, the people who behold Jesus and believe in him are the people that the Father draws so that they will come to Jesus. See, it's an equality. It's not an if-then. It's not saying that the people that behold Jesus and believe in him then become the people that the Father draws. It's not saying that this is first. It's just saying that it's equal. They're the same people. 
Same here. I know I'm confusing. I'm sorry. But the people that the father draws, see, some people start here and they say, well, it's only the people that the father draws that will come to Jesus. All right. But guess what? Oops, I'm in the wrong way. These are the people that behold Jesus and believe in him. They're the same people. And then, of course, people who want to start with believing, the people who behold Jesus and believe in him, it's also the other people that the Father draws so that they will come to Jesus. So you can say it both ways. That eliminates the idea that, you know, this is this is the only thing that matters and this is an afterthought. All right. That's really not true. All right. And the bottom line here is that no matter how you talk about these people, whether they're the ones that the Father draws, whether they're the ones that believe, the bottom line is, is that these people have eternal life and Jesus will Raise them up on the last day. And I want to end there because when you're when an unbeliever looking at this, all right, has to understand both of these things, that that you, you must believe in Jesus, the son of God, in order to have eternal life. At the same time, God, the father draws people so that they will come to Jesus. And, and if you if you think about it that way, again, there's a certain comfort there. It's basically saying that this is not all on your shoulders. You see, the Father will draw you to him so that you'll come to Jesus. All right. And at the same token, right, these same people have to understand that, you know what, the Father is going to draw you to come to Jesus. And, and the idea is that you believe in him for eternal life. And, and, and we have to look at this the same way as believers. We have to rejoice in both parts, the A and the B. We have to rejoice, not have to, but we ought to rejoice that the Father drew us so that we would come to Jesus, that he gave us to Jesus, and at the same time rejoice in the fact that we beheld the Son and believed in him. So the package goes together, and it's a fantastic package. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your grace and your sovereignty. We thank you that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. We thank you, Father, for your son again. We thank you that we not only do we have this opportunity that you have given us to believe in him for eternal life, but we also have this great gift of being able to preach the gospel that draws others to Jesus Christ. And we would ask, Father, that we would be masters of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we may be equipped and ready to give this answer for the reason of the hope that we have inside that we're all born sinners, every person who ever lived except Jesus, and that that Jesus Christ was given by the Father so that he would come to earth and he would be God in the flesh, the incarnation, that he would go to the cross and he would die for the sins of the world and he would be buried on the third day, you raise him from the dead. And whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for us, that person will never perish, but has eternal life. And as we leave today, Father, we also pray for one another tonight. This morning, we pray for different difficulties and struggles, problems that people are facing in our congregation right now. We pray for two things, Father. One, that you that you would, as we know you will, work all things together for good in their lives. And two, 
that you would give them the confident assurance they need to trust you as you do so. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. As we leave today, remember again, um, both Bible study this Thursday and worship service next Sunday will remain on Skype. We'll let you know at that time next weekend what the plans are after that. I'm praying that we're at a point where we don't we can get back together, um, whether that's because this this variant has sort of passed or because we figured out a way to do it safely. Either way, um, that latter one will cause require the cooperation of, of the members of the congregation so that it all works out for everybody. But either way, we're going to get back to you in a week, to let you know what the plan is going forward after that. All right. By the way, we still, of course, pray every Thursday at the end of our Bible study. And we do um, make it easy. Hopefully it's easy for you to uh, let us know what you'd like to pray us to pray for. Um, you can most readily do that on our website where there's a, a little box you can click and then you can type it right in there. And, and then we have it. Um, you know, you, you can also email it to us at info at lbible.org. All right. Let's close again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you to get again today for all your gifts. We thank you, Father, for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it's really your word and the spirit that count, that matter, and that we should always be listening with both ears to what the word of God is telling us and that the Holy Spirit explains to us and that that be our focal point. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.